Welcome back to Making Sense of Money, a financial education podcast aimed at making complex financial topics easier to understand. I'm Nikki Jankola-Shanks. I'm Andrew Pellegrini. In case you missed our previous episode, we talked about the student loan repayment pause and public service loan forgiveness waiver. If you have loans and want more info on what to do, maybe you should check that out. Today, we have a returning special guest on, Kamaya Wallace-Bichard from University of Illinois Extension to talk about access to credit. She was on our 15th episode way back when, which was also about credit, along with Natalie Daniels. The previous episode discussed more about credit management, while today we're going to focus on access to credit. Kamaya, do you want to introduce yourself and talk a bit about your role in Extension? Absolutely. Thank you, Nikki. Thank you, Andrea, for having me on again. So I am so grateful to be on your podcast, and it's a pleasure to come and talk about another credit topic, because as you know, credit is so multi-layered, but we love talking about it. We love finding out more information. We like providing up-to-date information um, on different aspects of credit. So I am a consumer economics educator, and my role falls under um, family and consumer sciences within corporate extension. Um, So I love teaching personal finance and I love working for extension. And, um, you know, with with podcasting and being able to talk about some of the topics that matter to us in a different format, it is always exciting for me. So thanks again for having me. We really appreciate you joining us today, Kamaya, and your insight is going to be really helpful for all of our listeners. So for those of you listening, kind of as a refresher on the way the credit system generally works. Once you obtain a line of credit, like from a loan, maybe a lease, a credit card, et cetera, the companies that you make payments to report your payment history, good or bad, to one or all of the three credit bureaus. So those three credit bureaus in the United States are Experian, Equifax, and TransUnion. And those are competing companies and they keep records about you and all that data contained in credit reports. The data in the credit reports are also used by other companies like credit scoring companies and lenders who can purchase it to make lending decisions about consumers. Credit reports and scores have significant impacts on consumers since they are used to decide whether or not to lend to someone insure them, or even employ them in some states. Kamaya, can you talk to us about how not getting access to credit can impact a consumer's life or their financial choices? Yes, absolutely. So first, let's talk a little bit about what kind of access to credit means, So, like that fair access fees. And it just means that we all have equitable opportunities to make credit decisions Um, about our lives and about our future. So when we experience fair treatment, um, you know, this is what we want everybody to experience. When we all experience that in our credit um, transaction, we're able to establish and maintain like a healthy credit history. Um, And this equitable access, you know, it should be available to all of us, um, you know, people who want to participate in like the credit market. 
But when there is a blockage to that, when people face barriers to that, um, it takes away a lot of those abilities or those opportunities for people to build their credit history, to create a rich credit history in terms of making sure that they um, you know, have different types of loans and that information on how they're making like their loan payments, you know, the, the, the activities that they have going on in their financial life is reflected in like that history. So when there is barriers to obtaining credit, so auto loan, we think of, you know, education opportunities in terms of student loan, um, as people make decisions about housing, you know, not having like that rich credit history where a lender could look at that information to decide, you know, how you'll be able to pay them back. Um, you know, those barriers provide just like blockage for like a lot of people. And I know we'll talk a little bit about like credit invisibility and some of the, the, the consequences of that or the reasons why people may not have a rich credit history. So thinking about all these consequences of not having access to credit, can you talk to us a little bit about credit market discrimination and its impact on consumers? Yeah, and this ties into um, like the previous answer too with when, you know, we don't have like that access, how that might affect us. But when we think of like credit discrimination, this occurs when lenders or creditors engage in unfair practices. And sometimes it's intentional and sometimes it's unintentional. Um, and there are different types of credit discrimination that of course permeates the lended industry. Some of them are more obvious in your face more um, overt and some are a little bit more subtle. So access to credit helps consumers to be able to purchase like big ticket items that is harder to pay out of pocket. And when we think of big ticket items, we think of things like, you know, housing. Um, we think again of like cars, but it could also mean replacing appliances in your house, right? So sometimes people have that emergency cash on hand, but there are other times when people do need to rely on credit in order to, to obtain some of like these bigger ticket items. So that lack of access prevent that from happening. It prevents for a lot of people um, that ability to obtain the credit that they need to use as and when they need that. So with like though that blockage, you know, it, it, it prevents people from being able to, you know, buy a reliable car for work or build assets or provide opportunities as people are trying to either grow savings and pay down debt. So Kamaya, one mm -hmm. thing that we don't always talk about as a society is the impact that credit worthiness can have on the amount we pay for insuring different things mm -hmm. and how, how much it costs to insure our car or whether or not a uh, insurance provider will even give us insurance. Our credit worthiness has a lot to do with whether or not we have access to or how much we will pay for insurance. You know, for this question too, Andrea, just like you said, with like our credit history, that really does affect like the relationship that we will end up establishing with like our lenders. And part of what we do, um, like what I do as consumer economics educators, have people, even people who are either building up their credit or reestablishing because something else has happened in their life is to always like shop around for, um, you know, looking at just different companies and different ways how they can comparison shop as you're looking for opportunities in terms of like purchasing insurance and different things like that. So listening to this, 
everything. I just would like some clarity as far as, aren't there any laws to help prevent discrimination in credit-based decisions? Because obviously this type of credit blocking almost can have serious consequences on someone's life. Yes, of course. So when we look at like different U.S. laws, like specific laws that guides credit and how lenders and how creditors can interact and how they can review like consumers information. So one of the laws that come clearly to mind is our Equal Credit Opportunity Act. And this, of course, creditors can still ask you questions about like your personal characteristics because they're actually working with you to decide, you know, if you'll be able to repay this loan. So, of course, they might ask about like your employment status or information, just knowing um, that you have like that ability to pay back. They also might ask, you know, things about, you know, who are part of your household and some of those responsibilities that you might have. But they may not use some of this information that they do have on you to decide whether or not to give you credit. You know, not everyone that applies for credit get it at the same rate. And lenders, again, can use certain factors to just evaluate you, again, your income, your expenses, or what you have coming in and what do you have going out, um, just to determine like your your background and, and finding more information about you. Now, with fair lending practices, that is the part that supports like that legal or that equal access to credit. And this ties again into like that Equal Opportunity Act. Financial institutions are reminded that they do need to establish effective policies and procedures when they are working with consumers just to make sure that things are transparent and they have non-discrimination policies within all of that. So, you know, some of the different um, opportunities for people to learn a little bit more about like some of the laws that govern like credit transactions and credit interactions with financial institutions or even um, fair lending practices in terms of housing and things that do affect our human rights. Um, so there are protected categories that um, lenders cannot use in their decision as they're making like those kinds of tra- credit transaction with you to make sure that they do not discriminate against you. Thank you, Kamaya. So there's there's obviously different factors that can lead to this credit discrimination and essentially keeping some of the most at risk and vulnerable populations from getting access to pretty vital financial services. Like in the state of Illinois, if you own a car, you are required to have a certain amount of car insurance. So having access to that and, and choice among many options is really helpful for complying with the law as a driver in Illinois. Overt discrimination is probably what a lot of us think of when we talk about discrimination generally. But Kamaya, can you talk about the rules that disparate treatment and disparate impact can have on credit discrimination? Yes. So some of them, again, like Andrew said, some things are more obvious, blatant in your face. And then there are other things that um, are less in your face. So disparate treatment happens when a lender treats an applicant differently based on what the law states as protected categories. So when we think of things like age, when we think of even 
employment and housing situation, all of those fall under that category or national origins. Those fall under those protective categories. So when lenders treat people differently based on those very specific categories, they are engaging in like that disparate treatment. And sometimes with this type of discrimination, we might see evidence of it within like employment for people who um, might share their case with like the consumer financial protection areas or bureaus that that work for consumers and people might share stories of how they experience that during you know trying to find employment it could be based on race it could be based on age or any of these other protected categories so this type of um, discrimination this disparate treatment this is usually a little bit more in your face um, it's so it's close to the overt approach it's a little bit more in your face the other um, type of discrimination, which is disparate impact, this occurs when like lenders, um, they try to apply like a neutral policy that they think will benefit all of their customers. So it's just like a policy, for example, there was one case that was brought before um, the consumer protection agencies where they had an insurance company who was looking for ways in how they can make adjustments to their insurance policies for all of their customers. And they ran an algorithm to help them determine, you know, where are some places that they could make changes. But based on the information that they input in like this artificial intelligence software, it turned out that when they ran it, it showed that middle-aged drivers were going to be charged a lot more for insurance than all the other drivers. So this is kind of where they were trying to establish like this policy that they call a neutral policy. But because of how the information got ran and what they inputted in there, it would have significantly disadvantaged um, middle-aged drivers. So, you know, with these types of discrimination, um, you know, they're not all the same and the stories that you hear about them will not all be the same, but just knowing that there are some that are a little bit more in your face and then others that are a little bit more subtle and say, for example, with like the neutral policy piece, you know, you would think that, you know, they're working for consumer interest and this is why they want like a neutral policy, but it doesn't always benefit everyone. So Kamaya, how prevalent is credit discrimination? So I mentioned one example earlier um, about like our, our middle-aged drivers, but there are so many cases and different ways for us to learn more about like discrimination and knowing that it still does exist. And this is a question that I do get a lot when I focus on like the sphere access piece. It's like, we know that it exists in our society, but do you see lots of cases or lots of evidence of this? It is great that we don't see more. Let's say that. It is so great that we don't see more. But we know that consumer protection agencies are working on our behalf. Um, I want to share another example. So there is a case that the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau and the Department of Justice did. So they investigated a bank that had allegedly violated the Equal Credit Opportunity Act and the Fair Housing Act. So what um, these agency does, these consumer protection agencies, they typically send people undercover to find out more about what is going on with that organization. And so what they did in this case, they send undercover testers on to meet with like bank employees at multiple branches for this bank 
And they found that the bank employees treated African-American testers. So those are the undercover folks. They found that the African-American testers were treated worse than the white testers, even though they have similar credit qualification. So they would restrict like African-Americans to like smaller loans and different things like that. And this falled under some of like the issues relating to like housing and the topic of redlining, of course. And I know when I know you guys have done podcasts on housing, but just to quickly highlight what that actually meant and why this case was so significant was that with redlining, it's like a discriminatory practices um, by banks and other financial institutions to deny or avoid providing credit services to consumers because of things like racial demographics of like a neighborhood in which that consumer might live. And so with this case, and when they investigated, and they found that there was error here, they also found that there wasn't a lot of consistency across like the different branches of the bank with how the employees were dealing with consumers and how they were helping with like distributing loans. And so they might found that maybe one branch did things this way and another branch did things this way. But when there is such disconnect throughout the organization, that's when a lot of discrimination can just seep in. And lots of times people might not think they're intentionally you know, treating people differently based on their race or age, where they live, things like that. But that really does occur. And so when we talk about like the prevalence, knowing that there are agencies working on our behalf to address issues that consumers bring to them. And we are very glad that we don't see more cases of that. But I'm sure for some of you, even like over the last few years of the pandemic, there's been just several cases about, you know, things like housing discrimination and some of the challenges that people have had um, as they're trying to to manage like credit and manage their lives um, and seek like options that are going to work for them. That is all really both, like you said, it, it's terrible that it happens at all, but it is nice to know that there are these agencies that are kind of working on make, tamping it down and, and hopefully maybe one day it won't be an issue at all. I know, actually, Andrea and I also talked and interviewed a while ago on this podcast about within Illinois, we have a special anti-predatory lending kind of like database that somebody in, in at the Illinois Department of Financial and Professional Regulation actually keeps this database and makes sure mortgage companies specifically are doing what they're supposed to be doing right. and, and things like yes. that. So mm-hmm. accountability. But- Yes. Love it. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. Kamaya, one thing you did talk about was that businesses, and we talked about this with insurance and before, that businesses are allowed to ask about your background and other information to make a decision about whether to actually do business with you. So if they're allowed to do that, are there things that they are allowed to actually ask and things that they are not allowed to ask? Right. Yes. So think of like any business, Um, you know, you're going into kind of like a contractual arrangement with this business, you're borrowing this money, they would like to know that they will get this money back. And of course, you will be paying that back with interest. And so in order for them to evaluate, you know, how you'll be able to repair, repay them, um, they have to look at, at certain information from you. So, you know, your income, your expenses, 
um, you know, see how many lines of credit or things you have going on. And if you have maybe too much or, you know, what you're trying to get from them, if that will fit into your current like situation, your current budget. So yes, they're able, they they should ask that information because that's their due diligence as well too. We want lenders have responsibilities and they need to be accountable to the law. And to consumers as well, too, to, to, to evaluate, to see whether or not people are able to, to repay them. But those are, there are the protected categories that even though they're obvious and they might see them in front of their faces, they cannot use that in their um, decision making. And again, this goes back to like national origin. It goes back to um, gender, so gender identity, gender expression. Um, religion, race, employment, like these are protected categories that these are lots of things that people can see on paper and physically, but they cannot use that or should not use that in their decision making process. And when they do violate and um, use any of these um, protected categories, this is when consumers will step up and report like this information and let the protection agencies know that they've experienced discrimination. And we do encourage like lots of people to share that information. There are ways that you can file claims because when they do, these present cases to these agencies that we can learn more about and for people who will experience it in the future because it won't go away. I'm, for, I'm sorry, but it really won't. So for people who might experience it, they have examples that they can refer to to evaluate their situation and make decisions accordingly. Thank you, Kamaya, for highlighting that if you do experience it, there are places to report it and hopefully help get those things squashed yeah. so they happen less. In thinking about that, what are some of the warning signs that discrimination is happening either overtly or subtly, like we talked about earlier? To me, in a lot of situations, when, when, people, when people are treated differently, they feel it. So sometimes people feel it in their soul or they suspect just based on even a phone call. Um, how this person is might treat them differently. And so one of the warning signs is being treated differently in person than on the phone or, you know, over email. So, you know, anybody can write nice things over email or have like a good conversation, but then I'm showing up in person, that creditor, that lender might see the person fully just based on their race or their gender expression or how they might look, if they might look a little bit younger or older and decide that, even though they had this great conversation and they did maybe even pre-screens um, to look at like their credit history, but they're treated differently um, in person. And people just know. I think a lot of times people do know. There are also signs where people are discouraged from applying, even if they do qualify or they have like a credit profile um, that can help them get a good interest rate or, you know, of course, pay back that loan. But they're discouraged from um, applying. Sometimes people might overhear things. So you might walk into a business and you might overhear whether it's employees or other people who are interacting in those spaces. They might hear people say things that may come off, you know, even as racist or sexist or, you know, things that just, you know, you hear those negative comments and this is probably not a place that you would want to do business. So people might overhear things like that as again, too. Sometimes people might feel like they're not valued. So say, for example, they're denied credit, but there's like no explanation given. 
So you apply for this credit. The lender's like, yeah, well, I, yeah, we can't grant this to you. And they don't really give you like any good reasons why um, you were, were denied. And of course, as consumers, you have a right to like that follow up and to know why you were denied that. There's also ones too where, you know, people are being pressured to sign. You know, it's just like, it's hot off the press. You must do this now or you will lose this opportunity. Always question things that seemed rush. In my household, my partner and I, we always say, let's be willing to walk away from this deal. So so having like those discussion, even if you're really anxious or you really need to obtain that loan, always question it. If you're, you're being pushed to make a decision really fast, talk to somebody else, talk to other people and just um, take a step back because that can also to be a sign of discrimination. And they're looking for you to sign up for a much higher rate than um, you should be signing up for. I have a personal kind of anecdote Mm -hmm. to share there. So I am less likely, I think, to be a victim of racial discrimination in my financial dealings. However, I read all my contracts. So I went to buy a car at a a dealership and I already knew what my credit was, Mm -hmm. what I was likely to be approved for, for rates, but I still kind of took my time going through the paperwork and they were kind of being pushy. I think just because like, that's what their normal thing is. Right. But then I noticed in the paperwork that the math wasn't adding up and they were trying to add on an additional service. I specifically said (gasps) we weren't going to buy. Oh no. Yes. I was very irate about it because I am very well-versed in financial documents and Mm -hmm. processes. And I just kept thinking, how many other people have you done this to? And he tried to, the, this business manager tried to misrepresent their relationship with my bank because they, they could, you know, Mm -hmm. set up lending for multiple local banks. Right. And so he tried to tell me that they would charge me something that they would not because I already knew. So we did end up buying the car, but I was very, very serious about, I reported them to the CFPB. I reported them to the Federal Trade Commission. I also expedited my complaint to leadership at that dealership Mm -hmm. because other people should not be experiencing it. And so if you take your time just to go through and kind of ask questions and double check the paperwork, you might not just recognize discrimination, you may recognize fraud Yes, as well. So that's just my personal story that hopefully somebody else will recognize. It's okay to take a breath, Mm -hmm. even if the people that you're dealing with are seeming pushy and it's making you anxious, just take a breath. Kamaya and I have talked about mindfulness in the past, Mm -hmm. maybe just be aware of what your body's feeling and recognize that you're the one in control when you're going through that paperwork. They're not in control. You are. Because like Kamaya said, you can walk away still. Mm -hmm. And thank you for making that decision. And I know, of course, you're you're in um, finance, personal finance, of course, with filing that information, but it really does help. We won't see every case being, you know, big national cases where they're winning like millions of dollars for consumers, but even like small 
cases or something that you might think is small could have like a larger impact. So, you know, when we file that information and when we share our experience, that will help other people as well, too. I will say I do not love carbine. There's just there's just so many pieces to it. So um, I'm sure like some of the listeners will have some personal experiences, too. Like I've talked to you know, other people like young adults who are going in to buy like their first vehicle and and some of the issues that they might feel, you know, being pushed at them. And, and they, of course, they understand that. I think this is because of my age. I think this is because of the way I look, um, why I was treated this way. So pay attention to all of those, even the subtle things, because you want, you are working hard to be able to obtain these things that you need. So just like Andrea said, take your time. You are in control. Even if you've had a problematic credit history and you're working to rebuild that, you are worthy, you are valued, and uh, making sure that you are taking that time out to acknowledge that about yourself in these types of transactions. I, I love that. You are worthy. We should, no one should ever forget that. Yes. So, Kamaya, clearly there are many reasons why someone can end up credit invisible, as we kind of touched on where they have no or very limited credit history. Besides overt discrimination, desperate treatment and impact, what are other factors leading to this type of credit invisibility? Yeah, and I did touch on it earlier, but I can give just a little bit more details when it comes to um, being credit invisible. So just like Nikki said, people who are considered credit invisible do not have um, like credit history with one or, you know, any of like those major credit reporting bureaus. So we're thinking of TransUnion, Equifax, and Experian. And so with like that credit invisibility, you know, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau did a study a number of years ago back in 2015, and they found that there are millions of Americans without like a good credit files with any of these bureaus. And so when it comes to like that credit invisibility, please, we know that unfair access does create barriers for people. But there are also people who are debt or credit averse and may choose not to want to like use a lot of credit. So we have to acknowledge that as well. So there are people who may have beliefs about how credit can lead you down a wrong path. And they've seen examples of how either family members or friends in what they quote unquote call uses credit irresponsibly, and they don't want to fall in um, some of those credit traps. And they, some people also might believe that people might live beyond their means in terms of credit, because we know that people are more attached to like their cash than they are to like their, their plastic, you know, like their credit cards. And so for some people, you know, that kind of aversion can prevent them from wanting to use like lots of credit. And we also know that People have personal preferences, and sometimes people have had negative experiences in the credit industry. So it's just lack of fate um, in the credit market and not wanting to necessarily use credit. So those are some of the ways that I think for some people, they might choose um, not to use credit. And of course, when you are not building a credit history, um, you might fall within the millions of folks who are credit invisible. So in situations where maybe someone wants to start establishing credit and essentially it becoming credit visible, they've been invisible, they want to become visible, what are some of the options for getting started? 
So there are traditional information that lenders use and the credit viewers collect and report for us, right? So within like our credit report. But um, some of the consumer financial protection agencies have been looking at ways to help or consumers, people who are starting out or people who are rebuilding their credit, trying to find like different ways to help people become more visible, people who really do want to participate in the credit um, industry. So we know that without like a credit record, um, lenders will have like a harder time assessing our credit worthiness. And, you know, this of course will result in like that credit invisibility but from information that we know from the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, as people are trying to build like that visibility, there are different techniques that based on like their research that they believe can help people. And so for most people who are like transitioning out of like that credit invisibility stage, they realize that a lot of these people are young. Um, so it said that almost 80% of credit invisibility are people who are like under the age of 25. And so they know that as they try to help people, they understand that for people starting out, applying for credit cards, this could be like, you know, for some people, it might start out as like a secured credit card where you do put up a collateral, um, if you do have help to, to put that up in order to start establishing credit. And so credit card is like one of the ways that people do use that information to try to start building that. There's also, you know, I know there's lots of conversations around student loan and Andrea and Nikki are experts in this, um, but even student loans that can help people as well too as they're building up their credit because I remember you know starting out as an international student and having student loans and this really did help me as I was like establishing my credit history and also knowing that there are other forms or other payment options that the financial protection bureaus are looking at to help people um, you know being able to report information that they will value so say for example you know, what are, what other are bills do people pay that may not show up on your traditional credit report? So say, for example, you know, different bills that might be like everyday expenses and some of the different things that they're hoping that lots of lenders will consider because once they consider this, they can see how consumers have been making other decisions and how that can help them as they're trying to build credit. Thank you, Kamaya. So we mentioned earlier that legally consumers are supposed to have equal access to credit. That's kind of like the whole discussion today is about yes, legally yes. you are supposed Ooh. to have equal access to credit. How is this enforced? Like we know discrimination happens, but how is that legal equal access to credit enforced? We've been we've been talking a lot about like these consumer protection agencies, and that's a huge part of their job. So we know that places like the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, we have the Department of Justice, we also have different banking agencies that work on behalf of consumers. And these are places that just like Andrea did with her example, where you can file a claim, um, you can describe what has happened to you? What were your experiences like? And if you have like any evidence or of anything like any paperwork or things that you can, of course, keep track of 
I think that's important to have that information because these agencies, um, the Department of Justice, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, they work on behalf of us to help understand what our experiences are like and hold these companies, these organizations accountable for their action. So they help to enforce some of these laws and investigate. So I gave you examples of, you know, or as Andrea called them, like our undercover um, financial police people who are going in, but it's just like testers who are going in just to learn more about what people are actually experiencing in their day-to-day lives. So it's not just one person going in and asking questions. Do you guys discriminate? No, they're actually going in and trying to learn more about what does the, what is the holistic experience of like consumers as they're working with this banking institution. And so when they're able to do that, when we file those claims and submit that information, they're able to do like their investigation. And, and we hope that it is not true across the board for a lot of the cases, but there are cases, of course, where they find evidence showing credit discrimination. But yes, those are the main ones, some of the main ones that focus on helping to enforce like or equal um, credit opportunity laws. So Kamaya, what, if anything, can you do if you are denied credit? Like we said, when it comes to applying for credit, you know, lenders can decide whether or not to lend to you. That's just business, right? That is just business. They can decide whether or not to lend to you. But you as a consumer, you are entitled to an adverse action letter showing why you were denied that credit. So it should explain why you were denied. And you're also entitled to a free copy of your credit report if you have been denied. And you can obtain like your free copies of your credit report at annualcreditreport.com. But that lender that is denying you that credit should provide this information for you within your letter so that you have an idea of, wait, which credit bureau did you pull my report from? Or which of the these did you use? Which information did you use? So you can go back and do your due diligence to check to make sure that what they're reporting about your credit history is what's actually on there. Because once we have this information, if there is something that is off, that shows actions on your credit history that are not yours, you might be a victim of a fraud or, you know, identity theft, and that stuff can show up on there as well, too. So if it's a situation where, okay, um, yeah, I made some decisions and um, I just need to reestablish my credit right now versus, oh, I did not open up this new loan. I did not take out this personal loan. With that information that you get in that adverse action letter, you'll be able to assess where you are. So this is why that becomes very important for you to know why, right? We want to know why that happened. Yeah, thanks for that question. So Kamaya, you're an educator and you also manage the Money Mentors Program, which consists of volunteers who help others navigate financial decisions through one-on-one education and mentoring. As educators and mentors, what can we do to help acknowledge the role of credit discrimination in consumers' lives? We can do lots of things. We can consider how we interact with whether it's lenders or other people that we're in business with, you know, on a day-to-day basis. 
And I think sometimes when I talk about like this credit discrimination, people automatically go to racial credit discrimination, but there's so many different aspects to it. And I hope I was able to highlight that in some of the examples in terms of, you know, race, gender identity, gender expression, somebody who has an accent, somebody whose names sound different or, you know, different ways how people are, are treated. So for, for those of us who are privileged enough to have names that, you know, are general and, and people can identify with those names, just acknowledge the fact that there are other people who are looking for the same opportunities that you are in your day-to-day -day life who might face um, some challenges. So, of course, for us, when we work with like our Money Mentors volunteers, and these are a group of wonderful people who decide to train with us and offer one-on-one -on -one financial coaching, financial mentoring with those who sign up for a program. And with like our Money Mentors, it's just people acknowledging like whether they have privilege or not or reflecting on what experiences they've had. Because we do have like a diverse group of mentors reflecting on those experiences that they have and understanding what implicit bias is and understanding like what things like what microaggressions are and how people might be stereotyped throughout like these credit transactions. And there are lots of resources that we can explore on an individual basis. There is the Harvard implicit bias test that I really like to take. So they have um, just several categories that you can select from. So say, for example, you select disability and you want to assess how you might be biased against people with disability. And I have done these and they are very interested to, for you to, when you do them, to kind of reflect on how you think about just like different protected categories. There are things that not, not necessarily come to our mind. So for us is, you know, looking inwardly and participate in these different things. Now, some of them, it's like really easy to do. You go in, you make your selections, and you can decide, you know, you know, which areas that you think you would like to know more about. And so for me, I would put in, again, like um, disability, and there are questions that I answer, and it kind of assess me to think more about how do you think about, what do you think about people with disability? And so like with these kinds of like self-assessments, they really do help us to acknowledge just like some of the biases that exist in our world. And that, again, can help us as we're trying to understand more about the discrimination that might exist within the credit market. So whether or not you're an educator, you're just a regular person, you can um, just think about like your interactions that you have on a day to day basis. So whether you work from home or you're in a big office every day, we all have different levels of interaction with people. And when we do explore some of these like self-assessments, they can really, really help us um, learn more about who we are and the biases that we might not know we really do have. I agree, Kamaya. Sometimes those assessment tools can just be very eye-opening and draw awareness yes. to things you hadn't thought of or help you reflect on, oh, that might be why that interaction didn't go as yeah. I thought it did mm -hmm. because I need to check my biases, mm -hmm. right? So thank you for pointing out that tool. I will take note of it and put it in our notes today. I also want to thank you, Kamaya, for being willing to come on our podcast again to talk to us about 
credit access, discrimination, and warning signs. I also want to encourage anyone of our listeners that have been a victim of credit discrimination or fraud to file a complaint with the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau or Federal Trade Commission. Um, And I'll make sure to include links to those complaint tools in our show notes. Is there anything else that you'd like our listeners to keep in mind or anything you'd like to plug, Kamaya? Because you got a lot going on. (laughs) Well, again, I really do appreciate this opportunity. I love talking about fair access to credit. But I think like the main thing I would want to share with like your listeners is that the consumer economics team from University of Illinois Extension, we provide a lot of resources in addition to what you're getting from Andrea and Nikki, of course, that we find to be quite beneficial um, to, to people. So if you want to visit our website, the short URL is go.illinois.edu backslash finances. Um, so if you go to University of Illinois Extension and you type in finances, you're able to pull up our page and you can see some of the workshops we offer, the topics we cover. And we also have like a podcast that we host is a family financial feud podcast. And so we cover some similar topics um, as this podcast does. But if you want more listening, um, we have like some options for you there as well, too. But besides that, Thank you both for having me on. I hope that um, or the listeners get like some some great information from us because there's a lot to know about credit and a lot to know about fair credit. Agree. This is definitely a conversation that we will probably revisit again in the future because there's so much we could talk about. Everything you brought up individually could even be its own little like the fair housing act, you know everything there's just so much here yes, so yes. we really just want to thank you for, again for joining us today and as andrea mentioned we're going to add all the resources that you have mentioned and in some of the sources for some of the topics that you talked about in our show notes so if anything that kamaya mentioned like the test or or anything else please just check the show notes for more info And thanks for listening in today. And as always, you can like, subscribe, and share Making Sense of Money through SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Spotify.